Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego County reaches a vaccine milestone. We're talking about a million residents. Those are all a million residents who have gotten at least one dose that are over 16 years old. I'm Jade Hindman with Andrew Bowen. Maureen is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego's transportation chief reacts to President Biden's infrastructure plan. It's bold uh, and it's needed. Uh, I think uh, we've been waiting for a while for a national strategy for investment in infrastructure. And a look at recommendations on how police handle protests, plus the efforts to get student athletes paid. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. San Diego County has tightened the race between COVID-19 and vaccinations. Sunday, we reached a milestone. We surpassed 1 million vaccine doses. This as more variants begin to surface. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman has been covering the county's vaccination efforts and joins us with the latest. Matt, welcome. Hey, Jade. So that 1 million number I mentioned is of doses, and two of the three vaccines approved require two doses before someone is fully vaccinated. So where are we at with the number of people who have been fully vaccinated? Yeah, so that 1 million number, those are people who have received at least one dose. And we know that who, people who are fully vaccinated, so either getting both doses or that one Johnson & Johnson, is more than 600 San Diegans, 600,000 San Diegans, excuse me. And we know that that's 22%, more than 22% of all residents over age 16 years old. Keep in mind the numbers here. We're talking about a million residents. Those are all a million residents who have gotten at least one dose that are over 16 years old. Just last week, more people became eligible for the vaccine. Remind us who is currently eligible. Yeah, Jade. So right now, everyone aged 50 and older is eligible to get a vaccination. And basically, you know, before you might have had to had an underlying condition or maybe you had to bring some paperwork to show that you are an educator. Um, none of that is required now. You know, you book your appointment online. You know, you come, you show your ID, no questions asked over 50 and get your appointment. And then starting in middle of April, that opens up to everyone age 16 and older with the same thing, no restrictions there. Do we actually have enough vaccines for all of the people who are eligible right now? You know, we know supplies have been increasing. You know, Supervisor Nathan Fletcher said our, our most recent county allocation was a 25% bump, which is the highest bump that we've seen uh, since getting vaccinations. But it's it's not keeping up with demand. You know, they estimate at around the 30 or so county sites, plus some other ones they could do 
at surge capacity, 50,000 shots a day, but they're doing, you know, a little over 12,000 a day right now. Uh, ideally, they'd like to be doing around 30,000, but supply um, is still lagging behind that demand right now, which is very, very high. And county officials are warning people, you know, that it may be hard to find appointments, um, but they're asking people, you know, just to have some patience here. And Scripps uh, mentioned they're shutting down Del Mar, right? Yeah, you know, that's that, that's been a constant thing that we have seen at some of these superstations. You know, the one downtown Petco Park, people might remember um, having a lot of appointments there rescheduled. Um, and then also, you know, that new Del Mar superstation, uh, Scripps has had some issues there over the last few weeks with supply. Um, and, you know, it's, sometimes it seems like the county goes after the biggest fish, so to speak, you know, closing one of those super stations. So they might not have to close down five or six smaller pods. Yeah. And, and Del Mar will be closed from Wednesday to Sunday due to the lack of a vaccine. All of this makes getting an appointment that much harder. Um, do you have any advice for people who are eligible for a vaccination but are struggling to get an appointment? You know, there's a lot of different places to get vaccination appointments. You know, we talk a lot about uh, the, the county-sponsored sites, you know, the ones uh, that are on the MyTurn website. Uh, but there's also a lot of pharmacies. You know, some of those pharmacies you'll see on the MyTurn website, like Vaughn's Pharmacies. Uh, but then there's ones like Rite Aid that are not listed on there. You know, that they, they use their own portal. Uh, we know that Cal Fire San Diego, part of Operation Collaboration, they're doing vaccinations. Um, and those are booked through PrepMod, which is an online system. Um, you know, they're going to be this week up in some rural areas, up in Campo, I know for a day uh, on Wednesday, they have a couple uh, semi-permanent vaccination sites in Carlsbad. So checking out all your options, you know, just because you might not be able to find one on my turn, you might be able to find one through a pharmacy or, or through one of these mobile Cal Fire sites. And the governor was in City Heights this week and hailed the county's vaccination effort, particularly in the hardest hit communities. Can you tell us about the state goal in terms of prioritizing those in lower income areas? Right. So we know that that's something that the governor likes to talk about a lot, about how the state is allocating vaccinations to communities that have been hardest hit by COVID-19, something that he says not a lot of other states are doing. And, you know, some of the response that we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a vac vaccination events happening, uh, targeting communities like Barrio Logan. There was one this past Saturday there. Um, but the governor says that this is something that's really important. Here's the governor. This state is the only state in the country that has committed 40 percent of all of its first doses to be set aside under an equity framework, which will allow cities and counties like San Diego to move more quickly through these tiers. And so, Matt, how does the equity framework change the tier structure? Right. So th th this, this happened before. It was actually how we got into the red tier earlier. You know, the state hit the benchmark of hitting two million doses in some of those hardest hit communities. They set a new benchmark of hitting four million doses in those hardest hit communities. Basically, once they hit that benchmark, uh, the bar changes, so to speak. The bar is lowered a little bit. And that's how we could be getting into the orange tier earlier than we thought. Hmm. And if we hit that next benchmark, four million doses statewide, we'll be eligible to go from the red to orange tier. What would being in the orange tier change? Right. So we're talking about restrictions for a lot more businesses being relaxed. So we're talking about, you know, indoor retail on um, things like churches, the capacity doubles in there. Uh, we're seeing a lot of a lot of doublings in, in terms of capacity. You know, gym capacity increases. Uh, movie theaters, they can only be at 10 percent right now. That that's that, that is going to increase. So maybe not so many sectors reopening completely, but we're seeing an expansion of capacity. I've been speaking to KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you. Thanks, Jade.
Last week, President Joe Biden unveiled his $2 trillion proposal for infrastructure. It's meant to boost the economy as it emerges from the pandemic recession. But it's also pitched as a chance to invest in sustainable transportation, with hundreds of billions of dollars for mass transit and electric vehicles. That may sound familiar. San Diego County's transportation planning agency, Sandag, is also seeking to boost spending on trains and buses. Joining me to discuss what could be in this plan for San Diego is Hassan Ikrada, executive director of Sandag. Hassan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. First, I'd like to ask for your reaction to the president's infrastructure proposal. What about it stuck out to you? Well, uh, it's bold uh, and it's needed. Uh, I, I think uh, we, we've been waiting for a while for a national strategy for investment in infrastructure, as you know, uh, and, and you and I spoke about before. We were ahead of the curve in San Diego. We wanted that bold vision um, uh, to be here in the San Diego region. And I think as a region, we're well positioned to compete nationally uh, for this stimulus. And I hope it takes place and it's approved and signed by the president so we could get get to work. The American Jobs Plan, as this bill is officially called, includes $85 billion to improve public transit across the country. Mm -hmm. How much would San Diego County expect to receive from that if this bill is passed? How do these dollars typically get distributed? Well, uh, there is two ways uh, they can. They usually have two ways to distribute it. One is by formula based on population and two competitive. And I think in this case, I believe they're going to be a hybrid model. Uh, we can compete well. Uh, as you know, we've been talking about extensive expansion of our transit systems. Uh, uh, depend whether they're going to require that the project be shovel ready or not. Uh, but uh, if they also going to fund a uh, project in the environmental and, 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 and design. But we believe we are positioned better than any region probably in the country. What types of new public transit infrastructure is Sandag planning right now, and how much of those are shovel-ready? There is about a total $1.9 billion project uh, in the San Diego region that are shovel-ready. Uh, some of them uh, will, will get into um, next-generation rapid, some with improvement to stations, some with double-tracking in, in the Los Angeles corridor, uh, doing some tunnels. Those are shovel ready, and there's about $1.9 billion of them are already about 119 projects altogether. In terms of the mega project, uh, like, for example, the purple line, uh, the, the blue line, the configuration of the whole fast, high-speed underground system, uh, and some of them are not, ready, not shovel ready, but will be shovel ready in a couple of years if we get the local funding. Uh, so I, I think depends how the funding is spelled out. We believe we are ready to compete now with several ready projects, but also compete in a couple of years for projects that are going to reshape uh, and reimagine the future of transit in the region. Biden's plan also includes $80 billion for intercity rail like Amtrak. Where could Sandag use that money? I mean, obviously, uh, we have the second busiest corridor in the country here uh, called the Los Angeles Corridor, Los Angeles-San Luis Obispo Corridor that goes from San Diego all the way to San Luis Obispo. Uh, as you know, this corridor is a lifeline for passenger movement and for goods movement. Again, the second busiest in the country after the Northeast Corridor. We believe this, we are ready, and more than ready, we are actually very appropriate 
for a national funding because this is a corridor of national significance. So we think the Los Angeles corridor is going to get significant uh, federal funding uh, to make this corridor, uh, you know, a, a real high-speed, fast uh, service. Uh, for example, right now, a trip from San Diego to Los Angeles takes about three hours and 30 minutes. That trip could be uh, reduced to less than two hours if we double track, we straighten the corridor, the Miramar Cave, and we move the track off the bluff. So we think Los Angeles is going to do really well competing nationally. Biden wants to spend about $115 billion on roads and bridges, but the emphasis is meant to be on fixing them before making them wider to accommodate more cars. Is this the right approach? Absolutely. Uh, And and that was our approach in our five big moves. uh, Not a single mile of expansion, but a huge opportunity to add capacity to our highway system by pricing doing improvement. And I think that's what, what uh, our president's plan is consistent with what we've been saying over the last two years. Sandag is considering some kind of local tax measure to fund a lot of the projects in its next transportation plan. Now, if this bill ultimately passes Congress, do you expect that Sandag would still need that local revenue or could the federal government just make that unnecessary? Uh, usually, you're more likely to compete for federal state dollars if you have local dollars on the table. That has been the case. That's why Sandag was successful in competing in the past. I expect the same thing to move forward again. Uh, so we expect uh, the region to need local revenues. And these local revenues will bring almost $2.5 to every dollar, uh, or every local dollar. So it's a good deal for San Diegans, actually. You've said many times before that some of the highway widening projects that Sandag has had in its planning documents for many years simply won't happen because they're in conflict with the state's goal of reducing car travel and greenhouse gas emissions. When will we know exactly which of these highway projects are on the chopping block? By June, uh, we are releasing the draft regional transportation plan. And you're going to see clearly that uh, no highway expansion project will move forward in this plan as a staff recommendation goes. Whether the board goes with it is, is yet to be seen. But by June, uh, you and your, uh, your, your listeners are going to see a very detailed list of the project that's going to move forward, and none of them will be uh, a highway expansion. There will be uh, highway capacity increases by pricing some, by using shoulders, for priority for buses and carpoolers by actually taking some existing infrastructure, combining it with with uh, with new ones to, to price two lanes like we did in the I-15. But you shouldn't have to wait long. Uh, in two months, you're going to see that. Most people in San Diego County still drive nowadays. Why should we not be investing our infrastructure dollars in ways that make driving better and more convenient? Wouldn't that help the most people? Just adding lanes is never going to be solving uh, um, the traffic problems. But managing congestion through pricing and other mechanism is. Uh, the later demand kicks in when you add capacity. So therefore, I don't believe it's the right strategy to start thinking, expanding even so 90%, 90% of us drive and will continue to drive probably. But having said that, we have an obligation to make sure whether, whether we drive or take transit, we have real options to do it. Uh, and not always go uh, when you have congestion, say, let's add the lane, because that doesn't work. That strategy didn't work when Houston built a 26-lane uh, 
freeway that became one of the most congested in the country after a few months it opened. It doesn't work. Just adding lanes simply doesn't work. I've been speaking with Hassan Ikrada, executive director of Sandek. Hassan, thanks for your time. Thank you, Andrew, and I really do appreciate you and, and your reporting. Thank you very much, Andrew. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Andrew Bowen. Maureen Kavanaugh is off today. California is home to an estimated 900,000 undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children, many of whom are waiting for the Senate to pass legislation that would offer them a path to citizenship. The House approved one last month. KQED's Farida Jabvala Romero reports on one California dreamer working to achieve permanent protections. In September 2017, Gabriela Cruz watched in shock as the Trump administration announced it was ending Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. That was like a, a big wake-up call for me. The Obama-era program had allowed her and hundreds of thousands of other young undocumented immigrants to work legally in this country and be safe from deportation. also felt like I, I could live my life in peace and look forward to a future. At the time, she was 27 and working at a mortgage bank in Santa Cruz, where she has lived since her mom brought her from Mexico as a baby. Losing DACA would have meant going back into the shadows. She had to do something, so she and her mom started selling hundreds of homemade tamales to raise money for a trip to Washington, D.C. with other DACA recipients. Young immigrants were gathering again before the Capitol to rally in support of the DREAM Act, which was introduced in Congress for the first time in 2001. hearing and being a part of chants and protests like this one made her realize she could not live her life in fear. She became a full-time organizer. This is about demanding dignity and equality for our community. Cruz is now 31 and the California coordinator for United We Dream, a national network pushing to legalize undocumented immigrants. Part of that is getting this year's DREAM Act through the Senate. That bill would offer a pathway to citizenship to an estimated 1.7 million dreamers. Polls show Americans overwhelmingly support that, but the proposed legislation needs 60 votes to pass in the evenly split Senate. Immigration advocates and undocumented young people in particular have a very difficult hill to climb. Tom Wong directs the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. So the question is, where do those additional 10 votes come from, assuming that Democrats hold party line? 
For now, United We Dream and other advocates say they've been meeting with Republican Senate staffers and trying to pressure senators like Marco Rubio of Florida. Protesters live-streamed as they brought a mariachi band to Rubio's home last week to, quote, wake him up to protect immigrants. Wong says even if the bill doesn't get the 60 votes, the fight is far from over. We have seen undocumented young people put their lives at stake in order to advance things like DACA. And so I think we can expect uh, similar things to come. Gabriela Cruz says they'll keep up the pressure on lawmakers and President Biden, who campaigned on more humane immigration policies, bringing out first-time voters like Cruz's two younger sisters who were born in the U.S. Now it's time for them to fulfill these promises that they made to our community and come through. And many people who voted for the first time came from mixed-status families like mine. So not only is the immigrant community ready for this, but as a country, we are ready for this. And that's a dream she'll keep fighting for. I'm Farida Javala Romero. San Diego's Commission on Police Practices is recommending a number of changes to the San Diego Police Department's protest policy. They want SDPD to clarify when a protest can be declared an unlawful assembly, and they want changes to the usage of body camera footage. Protesters in San Diego have long been decrying what they see as a disproportionate response to lawful demonstrations, while police officials often cite unruly behavior among protesters as the reason the events escalate into violence. Here to discuss the commission's recommendations is Chair Brandon Hilpert. Brandon, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. How did the commission come up with these changes to SDPD's protest policy? Sure. Well, actually, let me take a step back. Is uh, After the George Floyd incidents uh, last year, we actually took a look to see what San Diego Police Department had, uh, and we realized that they actually didn't have a standalone protest policy. They were using existing policies uh, for use of force and when you can use um, chemical agents, things like that, um, which we, to be honest, I was surprised about because uh, I never thought to look. And once we realized it wasn't there, uh, we felt it was appropriate for San Diego to to make that change. So at the time, the CRB uh, held some community meetings uh, with a policy committee, and we looked at some policies around the country. Specifically, we found Seattle, uh, Oakland, Fresno, and Washington, D.C. to be some of the best that we found across the country that we thought could be leveraged here in San Diego. So the CRB at the time forwarded those to the police department, uh, and then they looked at those and they decided uh, that they would go ahead and start to create a standalone policy specifically for protest-related activities. So based upon that, uh, you know, once they wrote their policy, they shared that with us. We had our, our first policy committee meeting where we reviewed it, had some initial conversations, and then we also held a community roundtable to try to get more community feedback of what they like, what they don't like, uh, what they would like to see. And then we brought it to the full committee, uh, sorry, the commission meeting to have the commission vote on. And then we wrote our memo to the police department last week. Tell me more about the outreach process. I know in the past there's been some discontent over how much the community is involved with the police's policies and how they're changed. What kind of outreach did you do to come up with these recommendations? 
Sure. So as you know, um, the commission is kind of in a, a state of flux right now as we've moved, moved from a review board to a commission model. So we're not completely a commission yet. But as part of that process, we want to make sure that the community has the opportunity to, to voice their opinions and what they like and what they don't like. Um, that's not to say that we'll be able to implement everything that the community always requests, but uh, we wanted to try to be as open and transparent as to what we're doing. So even before we got to the protest policy, uh, we started doing community outreach uh, events. Um, our outreach committee chair held four community roundtables. Uh, some of the feedback we got from that kind of leveraged into the, the policy uh, recommendations we had for protest related issues. But specifically for the protest policy, uh, again, we have a, an open meeting uh, for the policy committee. Uh, we then make those recommendations to the full commission. And then the commission meeting is an open meeting, of course. Uh, but for this one, we actually held an additional community roundtable uh, before our open meeting. So we could try to get that feedback, incorporate that into our recommendations, and then present that to the full commission to have them vote uh, on our, our feedback. Did you or anyone else on the commission observe any of the contentious protests firsthand? And, and how did that experience form the basis for these recommendations? Yeah, so I personally did not. Um, I know some of our, our commission members did. Um, you know, as a commission, we try to be independent. Uh, we don't want to really be on the side of the police department or necessarily on the side of the community. We try to be an independent uh, review, uh, soon to be, you know, investigatory model. Um, but I mean, I think one of the things that we do tend to see is when we do review our uh, community complaints, um, sometimes those are protests related uh, and, you know, sometimes just standard you know, events that happen. Um, so oftentimes our recommendations are based on the complaints that we see. And then when we're analyzing that complaint and we look at the policy and the procedure, we realize that maybe the policy and procedure doesn't really respond the way we think it should. Uh, so that's usually how most of our, our recommendations uh, come about is, you know, either we see something that's either on the news or, you know, like to your point, if, if people have been actually out at a protest and they saw something that was, you know, maybe could have been handled better um, or complaints that just come in. So uh, again, I, I specifically didn't go to any of the protests, but um, we, we did see a lot of the community feedback. And then oftentimes the community will reach out to us and let us know uh, if they saw something they felt was maybe could have been handled better. Um, they'll, they'll share their feedback with us and we'll usually do a little bit of research to figure out if things could have been done differently. What has been the response that you've gotten from San Diego police so far? Uh, for the protest policy, we haven't heard back yet. Um, I know the, the our recommendations just went out last week. It usually will take them a little while to, to review, kind of digest what we're asking for. Um, and then they'll usually do a formal written response. Um, as one thing that we've shared with everyone, our, our recommendations are, are public. We put them up on our website and the response we receive back from the police department will be uh, put up on the website as well. So. Um, I, I hope to hear back from them soon. Um, I haven't heard back yet, but I'm sure they're reviewing our recommendations and will have some, some feedback for us. In your first recommendation, you say that the current protest policy reads more as strictly crowd control rather than the facilitation of First Amendment protected activities. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. One of the things, um, you know, obviously, when we looked at policies from around the country, Washington, D.C., you know, clearly has a very, very detailed policy. It's, you know, over, almost 100 pages. Um, I don't think San Diego needed to go quite to that level, but I think it's important that um, people who do want to use their First Amendment rights to protest, that they know what they can and can't do. Um, and this policy, I think, really talks more about if the police department has decided that something is, is now an unlawful assembly, how the police department responds. And I think that's important, but I think what's also important is it needs to be clear what the community can do during a protest activity. And uh, the department, I think, in the past has done a pretty good job of trying to facilitate uh, peaceful activities. It's just we want more clarity on when the department has decided something is not a peaceful assembly, um, 
how they respond, what it takes to get to that level, and then, you know, how the community uh, can respond. One of the things that, you know, we were a little bit concerned about is, you know, I think this is a good first step for some of the, the policy that they've created. There's a little too much ambiguity for us. Um, I think there's certain areas where it basically says, you know, a, a dispersal order will be given, but it doesn't really currently provide a lot of feedback on that of, of how many, how long, how many minutes do people have to depart a scene before, uh, you know, officers might go in. We want to see that clarity because I think that's important for the community to know, you know, what the expect expectations of them are uh, before something, you know, escalates and gets out of control. San Diego police officials have often cited unruly behavior of protesters as the main reason that things escalate into violence, maybe throwing rocks or bottles. Do you think that this is a fair assessment? You know, it's, it's always, I think it's a, it's a difficult situation. Obviously, I think the citizens need to be protected. Officers need to be protected. Um, I think it's, you have to look at the total situation to determine if the response from the police department is appropriate. Um, you know, I'm making, you know, a, a story up here, but if, if someone crumbles up paper and throws that up as not at an officer, does that justify a response of someone, you know, officer using a chemical agent in, in retaliation? Well, we would probably argue no. Um, you know, if protesters are throwing rocks or, or things like that, you know, does that, you know, justify a response from the, deplete, the department within their, their use of force? Yeah, that's, that's possibly something that would be appropriate, but we want to see clarity on all that. And we think that, it should be a, a open and transparent piece. So the department is, is letting the community know exactly what will happen and when and why. I've been speaking with Brandon Hilpert, chair of the Interim Commission on Police Practices in the city of San Diego. Brandon, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Gonzaga and Baylor will battle for the NCAA championship on the basketball court tonight. Meanwhile, there is a different battle happening in the Supreme Court, and that battle is over compensation for student-athletes and whether or not the NCAA is violating antitrust laws by limiting how much compensation student-athletes can receive. This is all part of a big effort to change a billion-dollar sports industry that pays players nothing. California galvanized the effort with the Fair Pay to Play Act. Legislation San Diego attorney Lynn Simon, who is also an adjunct law professor at USD, specializing in sports and law, helped to craft. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So can you remind us of California's Fair Pay to Play Act and how it's evolving? Sure. California's bill passed about a year ago, but doesn't come into effect until January of 2023, requires that all colleges in California, state schools and private schools, allow their athletes to monetize their names, images, and likenesses. So it doesn't require the schools to pay them any salaries or anything, but it requires the schools to get out of the way and let them earn money on the side from uh, advertising, summer camps, anything they want. That's prohibited by NCAA rules, but California is taking a different position. And last week, the Supreme Court heard arguments over whether or not the NCAA's limits for student-athletes violates antitrust laws. The NCAA faced some skepticism from justices during arguments. Can you talk about that? The NCAA lost this case in the trial court and the appellate court, although the courts didn't change the NCAA system that much, but the NCAA went to the Supreme Court almost offended that they had to answer these kinds of questions and asked for special treatment, asked to be treated very differently than, for example, the NFL or the NBA would be treated in antitrust cases against them, which are relatively frequent, or at least not unusual. 
and they didn't get much sympathy. The argument that the NCA is special and needs special rules got nowhere. And the, the courts pretty much said, go talk to Congress if you want a special rule. And when lawyers representing athletes presented their case, they too faced skepticism. What was the concern from justices there? I think their concern was that the NCA has been sued twice in the last eight years, both times in federal court in Oakland. Both times there was a long, expensive trial, and both times they lost, but they lost sort of small. And I think the NCA's argument that they're going to be sort of nibbled to death by having an expensive and distracting lawsuit every two or three years for the rest of their existence, uh, even though they're not, they're not losing big, big issues in this case, did get the court's attention. A court doesn't want a federal court to micromanage the NCAA and to micromanage college sports. And it, I think, was hoping the system would work like it used to, which is the NCAA or the NFL. But they might get sued every 10 years about something big. So that's the concern. Too many cases. Hmm. You know, what's so wrong with a pay-to-play system? And, and how might that change the way college sports are played? Well, pay-to-play uh, is kind of used in two ways. So let me give you a quick two-part answer. I think there's nothing wrong with what California did which is to allow the students to to, uh, obtain third-party payments. I don't see the problem with a a Stanford basketball star or a Stanford rower you never heard of making a lot of money or a little money on the side. That's really not making them a professional athlete, and it's not affecting Stanford's budget or Title IX or anything else. Uh, And that's why California uh, took that step and didn't go further. Um, On the other hand, if you ask the schools to pay the the college pay the students' salaries, you get into a huge battle over how much and to whom. And you do have a Title IX problem if the basketball stars on the men's team get more than the women's team, although the men generate more money. So paying them could be exorbitantly expensive, and it could be exorbitantly sensitive and difficult. Just getting by is tough for many college athletes. There's a large percentage of them who live below the poverty line. Can you talk a bit about what life is like for student athletes? Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a very tricky area because you do have students with little or no family support, with no family money, and they're being dropped on a campus, and they've got tuition, room, board, books, and maybe a fancy athletic program, but eating going to the movies, you know, taking a friend to dinner in the movies is all maybe all be beyond their means when they're surrounded by fellow students who in some cases worship them as stars and they don't have two nickels to rub together. So uh, there is a, a sense that particularly with the revenue sport athletes and the stars, but I think all the way down to just the role players, they ought to be getting a cut of what they're generating in some fashion. And how much is the NCAA pulling in? Billions and billions, but it's gotten so expensive to compete that the schools are spending billions and billions. And the NCAA argues that most of the schools are losing money on sports. Hmm. So ultimately, how do you think the court will rule? I think the court is going to rule technically as a legal matter in favor of the athletes. The athletes had a small win in the in the trial court. They're entitled to more small kinds of compensation from the schools but it has to be somehow related to their education. It has to supplement their educational needs and expenses and not simply be paid for play. And that sounds pretty modest. And I think the, the court's going to say that's fine. And then the court is going to write an opinion with some other ideas for the future. And that's where the fight will be. Do they say, don't, don't bring us these cases every year? 
or do they tell the NCAA to go to Congress and ask for help? It's not clear where they go. But I think the last sentence is going to say the opinion of the lower court is affirmed. I've been speaking with Lynn Simon, lawyer and adjunct professor at USD, who specializes in sports and law. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen with Jade Heinemann. Maureen Kavanaugh has the day off. Getting a COVID-19 vaccine shot can be very emotional. Some people cry with relief. For those who survived HIV, the newfound freedom is something they've felt before. KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg has the story of two gay men in San Francisco celebrating the second time a medical advancement has changed their lives. Even though Jonathan Salinas didn't live through the AIDS crisis, the virus still haunts his generation. When I was growing up, as a gay man, HIV should always be in the periphery or around the conversations of sex. About five years ago, Salinas learned about a daily pill called PrEP. The preventative medication is somewhat analogous to a vaccine for AIDS. As soon as I got on PrEP, that anxiety, that weight off of my shoulders, just, you know, it lifted almost immediately because I felt empowered. Now he works for the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, educating others about PrEP. As a healthcare worker, Salinas learned he qualified for a COVID-19 vaccine. He has been living in fear of the virus, especially for his family. It's a family of six people living in a two-bedroom home. That just terrified me because I know that none of them can take the time off of work. After his second shot, he felt a freedom similar to what he experienced after taking PrEP for the first time. I just felt so much hope. Now he can plan to visit his family. Months have passed since he last saw his parents and siblings, all of whom are essential workers in an agricultural community south of San Jose. Another San Francisco resident named Leo Herrera can relate. Because my dad is 65-year-old Mexican immigrant cashier. The first wave of death hit people like him. This year was the second time Herrera watched a virus rip through his community. COVID-19 has disproportionately hit Latinos and those who identify as LGBTQ. I'm a gay man and I'm 39, so I have a lot of viral trauma from the HIV pandemic. And I'm also a first-generation Mexican immigrant who grew up undocumented, so there's a lot of overlap. Between his experience of the two pandemics. Back in 2012, Herrera was dating a man who was HIV positive. That same year, PrEP, the daily pill to prevent HIV, hit the market. But just like the vaccine rollout today, access tilted towards affluent communities with good insurance. 
It took years for PrEP to be distributed widely to folks of color and folks without health care. And just like today, a lot of media focused on unknowns. Would the pill lead to toxicity, bone density issues, kidney problems? In the end, Herrera took a leap of faith. The first time I had sex without a condom with an HIV-positive person was a freedom and a loss of shame and anxiety that was phenomenal. Recently, he received his second COVID-19 shot. On his way to the vaccine site, he stopped for gas. A group of people were hanging out inside the station without masks. And I thought, oh man, I cannot wait for this to be the last time that I have to sort of focus on what everybody else is doing to take care of me. I can finally take that power back. Herrera is looking forward to the time when we're all vaccinated. And he's at a wedding reception or a bar. And without thinking, he hugs a stranger for the first time. And the hug is going to go on for a beat too long. And you're going to hold on to that stranger and you're both going to realize what that hug means. For Herrera, it'll mark his second victory against a deadly virus. That story was from KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. Harvey Shields has worked with some of the Bay Area's best professional athletes like Jerry Rice and Barry Bonds. He's also someone people turn to when they're recovering from injuries. So when the pandemic hit and clients started asking for help with lingering COVID symptoms, Shields switched gears and has been doing video sessions with people to train them in deep breathing techniques. The California Reports producer Amanda Font has his story. first one I really started working with uh, was the 49ers, Jerry. As in Hall of Famer Jerry Rice. Derrick Dees, Chester Sapolo, a lot of the offense and defensive players. Harvey Shields has been working with professional athletes for years. San Francisco Giants players like Barry Bonds and Willie McCovey. Barry Bonds stands alone. U.S. Olympic ski team gold medalist Peekaboo Street. But his clients also include the former king of Tonga and Costco warehouse workers. Because Harvey is not the guy you call in if you're trying to bulk up. What I do is not a personal trainer. Uh, my, My title is a corrective exercise specialist. He tries to prevent injuries by watching how people move, their posture, and making adjustments. And if they do end up hurt, he's there to help them recover. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, people close to Harvey started to get sick. I haven't had it myself. I've had friends of mine, and I think that also uh, affected me. I had friends of mine that was in Mississippi that died from the COVID. Then he started getting calls from clients struggling with COVID symptoms that just wouldn't go away. And you're going to take on down. Come back up to here, take your hand out. They asked me to, to see what I could do to help them. Then I started helping. I said, ha ha, this is something that will work. And when you bring your arm down, you want to deep breathe with it. Ready? He started doing online sessions from his home in Menlo Park. He charges clients based on their needs and how much time he spends with them. I came up with a different approach and deep breathing. Some of the people that I've been working with, you know, they're still having these residuals after six months after having it, initial having the COVID. And bring it down. And relax. So what did you feel when you was doing that? My shoulder feels better, feels looser, and my chest is warm and stretched. Exactly. So 
you can feel it more. You're feeling now opening it up, right? I had probably almost every symptom that there was. The worst symptoms for me was a fever, a constant fever that would just never go away. Joni Girado has been a preschool teacher for 32 years, even during the pandemic. She says she wasn't super worried about working with kids, but in mid-December, she got COVID and it hit her hard. It's like there's a band around your chest and it's just sucking in your lungs. She says things were pretty touch and go for a while. Joni called the emergency room a few times when she was really struggling to breathe. My oxygen levels had deteriorated. I think I was, I think my lowest was 91, 92. Um, They say to come in around 90. But her 17-year-old daughter, Hannah, also had COVID. And she says she didn't want to leave her alone, so she toughed it out. With the constant fever and aches, she was hardly able to sleep. I, I got a call from Harvey on a Saturday night. It was, it was probably the sixth night. Joni met Harvey about 10 years ago, when his daughter was enrolled in her preschool in Menlo Park. She's since moved to Folsom, but the two are still in touch. When he found out she was sick, he called her, wanting to help. And I was like, no, you can call me tomorrow. Like, I really don't feel good. And he was like, nope, get up. Harvey convinced her to get onto her computer so he could teach her some exercises to help open up her lungs. And Joni says she felt better. So what you do, you want to, but it's a slow. It was kind of amazing. My my oxygen level went back up. I think it was about 95, 96 after like 20 minutes. And that night was the first night that I actually like slept. Up to here, you're going to take it out slowly here. During their video sessions, Harvey usually stands in his backyard, surrounded by trees. He demonstrates the movement slowly, checking in with Joni to see how she's feeling. Sometimes Joni's daughter, Hannah, joins. She runs track, and Harvey wants to make sure she doesn't have any lasting effects. Joni says part of what makes her feel better is just who he is. He's reassuring and intuitive. You got to feel the connection, watching me feel my energy, allow my energy and your energy connect. And he's just like a kind, caring human being who was taught at an early age to to just give back to other people. That's kind of Harvey's personal philosophy. The greatest success in the world is being in a position to help someone else. Harvey grew up in a small town in Louisville, Mississippi. He says even though his family didn't have a lot, his mother and father still did what they could to help people in their community. And my mother would always, always told me that it's not about you, it's about helping others. That was the most important thing that she should be focusing on. Even though we was poor, that she said that there was always someone out there was worse off than you. Harvey says his mother's lesson is a big part of the reason he's doing what he's doing now. Someone asked me, what's the difference between helping a professional athlete prepare for the Super Bowl and what you're doing? And I told him that preparing a person for the Super Bowl If they don't win the Super Bowl, they have next year to try to win again. But these people don't have that next year to worry about. They they have to make sure this is done now to make sure that they're able to survive now because next year is not promised to them. He wants to give people hope so they can keep fighting and get better. That story came from the California Report's producer, Amanda Font. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. 
Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.